Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, the East Central Research Foundation farm near Yorkton has taken part in a trial on cadmium accumulation in flax. We'll hear from their research coordinator, Mike Hall, research assistant Heather Sorstad, and Ishita Patel, who is the project leader. She's based out of the Southeast Research Farm at Redverse. Technology plays a major role on Canadian dairy farms. On the recent Ask a Farmer podcast, host Clinton Monchuk from Farm and Food Care Saskatchewan spoke to Ontario dairy producer Andrew Campbell. We'll have an excerpt from that. And Saskatchewan's crop commissions have been working together to advocate on behalf of growers on broad policy issues, including grain contracts and carbon policy. We'll hear from a number of people on that topic as well. So all of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. But first it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers bio meal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Prahitka, your Remax Blue Chip Ag Division Specialist. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. The East Central Research Foundation farm near Yorkton has taken part in a trial on cadmium accumulation in flax. Research coordinator Mike Hall explains. Cadmium is a toxic, non-essential heavy metal that's found naturally in Saskatchewan soils. It can accumulate in sunflowers, durum wheat, and even flax. Research assistant Heather Sorstad says cadmium can be an issue in some countries. Cadmium is a emerging trade concern for the flax industry after a non-confirmed comment came from the Korean consumer market stating that our flax is high in cadmium. This effectively closed the Korean markets to our flax. Hall outlines the type of research that was done. AgriFood Canada and the University of Saskatchewan are breeding for low cadmium accumulating flax varieties. But in the meantime, this project endeavors to determine if management practices that have reduced cadmium accumulation in other crops will also work in flax. The project was developed by Aishita Patel from Southeast Research Farm. The study is evaluating the effectiveness of zinc and calcium fertilization to reduce cadmium uptake and accumulation in flax. The variety Prairie Thunder was used in this experiment as it's suspected of being more prone to cadmium accumulation. As you heard, Aishita Patel was the project leader. She's based at the Southeast Research Farm at Redverse. In August of 2021, the European Union set a maximum limit of 0.5 parts per million or 0.5 milligram per kilogram of cadmium for all imported flaxseed. This might present a significant trade concern for our producers going forward. 
we chose four sites in Saskatchewan for this experiment. Scott, Yorkton, Indian Head, and Red Bears. We chose them because there was literature showing that they had good variation of naturally occurring cadmium in their soils. The experiment was set up as randomized complete block design with four replicates. For the zinc treatment, we used zinc sulfate pellets, and for the calcium treatment, we used gypsum or calcium sulfate. And this was a Prill product. These products at the rates shown in the table were side banded at seeding, and the results were compared against the control treatment of no zinc or gypsum. Through this project, we sought to establish cadmium levels in the soil and phosphorylizer used at each site. One of the ways cadmium is added to our soils is through monoammonium phosphate or MAP or the phosphorylizer that we use to grow crops. Cadmium is present as an impurity in the rock deposits from which phosphate is mined and its addition is one of the major sources of cadmium buildup in the soil. Next on our objectives list was to evaluate if any of the treatments led to adverse effects on growth and development of the plants. Third, we assessed how effective the treatments of zinc and gypsum were in reducing seed cadmium accumulation, and we compared the economic feasibility of these treatments. Before seeding, we took soil and phosphorylizer samples and sent them to the lab for cadmium analysis. At seeding time, the treatment of zinc and gypsum were side-banded, and the seeding rate used for flax was an average 45 pounds per acre at each site. After emergence, we did plant density counts and measured plant heights to see if any of the treatments led to seed mortality or stunting or affected the growth and development of plants in any way. After harvest, we measured yield and moisture and sent the harvested flax seed samples to the laboratory for cadmium analysis. So here are the soil and fertilizer test results for each site. Soil cadmium level varied from being undetectable at redverse to the highest being 0.5 parts per million at Yorkton. Cadmium in the phosphorylizer used by each site varied as well, and Yorkton was found to have the highest cadmium in its phosphorylizer and soil. Now, after doing some math, considering the amount of phosphorylizer used at each site, we figured that the cadmium inadvertently added to the soil through the phosphorylizer varied from about 1.4 grams per acre to 2.7 grams per acre. There were no adverse effects of any of the treatments on plant growth and development as none of the treatments led to significant differences in plant emergence, plant height, or yield at any of the sites. Now, differences between sites were significant where average plant density at Redverse was the highest, followed by Yorkton, Indian Head, and then Scott. This is probably due to slight differences in seeding rates at each site. In comparing yield, Indian Head and Yorkton produced highest flax yields, followed by Redverse and Scott. Now let's look at the effect of treatments on cadmium levels in harvested flaxseed. In this plot, the same colored bars represent data from the same site. The sites are also listed on the x-axis with treatments going across from 1 through 7 shown in the table as well. On the y-axis is the average seed content of cadmium in parts per million in harvested flaxseed. This horizontal bar is where the seed cadmium level is 0.5 parts per million, which is the maximum limit set by the EU for all its imported flaxseed. Redverse was the only site where all of its treatments resulted in seed cadmium levels under the EU limit of 0.5 parts per million. For all other sites, most of the treatments resulted in flaxseed with cadmium level higher than 0.5 parts per million, even in the untreated controls, which are the highlighted bars. When comparing treatments within each site, most of the treatments did not significantly differ in seed cadmium content. 
the only significant difference was found at year 10, where treatment 4, which was zinc at twice the standard rate, significantly differed from treatments 2 and 7, which were zinc at standard rate and gypsum at twice the standard rate. Still, none of the treatments differed from the control, and so no treatment of either zinc or gypsum was effective in reducing seed cadmium content compared to the untreated control at any of the sites. Lastly, let's look at the economics of applying these treatments of zinc and gypsum. We calculated average yield revenue at each site by assuming the price of flax to be $18.50 per bushel and the cost of zinc and gypsum products were given to us by their manufacturers. Based on these costs, we calculated how much each treatment would cost as a percentage of yield revenue at each site. For example, we calculated that the treatment of zinc at twice the standard rate costs 3% of the average yield revenue at Yorkton. And if you recall, this was the only treatment that was found to be significantly different at Yorkton. However, since none of the treatments at any of the sites led to a significant decrease in the cadmium level of harvested flaxseed relative to the untreated control, and because the cost of applying products is more than applying nothing at all, we did not find the treatments of zinc or gypsum to be economically beneficial in this project. In doing this project, we found that both soil and phosphorylizer are a source of cadmium, and when producers apply traditional phosphorylizer in the form of monoammonium phosphate, they inadvertently introduce cadmium into the food chain, which then builds up in the soil. This is particularly concerning since most sites had seed cadmium levels exceeding that level of 0.5 parts per million set by the EU. As a solution to this issue, perhaps producers could consider using FOSS from sources other than MAP. An option could be Struvite, which is purified from sewage wastewater. But cadmium testing is still encouraged and we used AgWise labs in North Dakota, so that's an option. Secondly, we found that zinc and calcium applications did not significantly reduce seed cadmium content compared to the untreated control at any of the sites, and as a result, these treatments were not found to be economically beneficial. We had high variability in the data in 2022, but we will be redoing this trial in 2023 and hope that the variability will be low enough to get some statistically significant results. That's Ishita Patel, the research coordinator at the Southeast Research Farm near Redverse. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94 Ag Review. Federal Finance Minister Christia Freeland's latest budget envelope for Canadian farmers up against rising costs of production includes a temporary boost to the interest-free portion of cash advances. Freeland's 2023 federal budget, released yesterday, includes $13 million in 2023-24 for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada to temporarily increase the interest-free limit for loans under its Advanced Payments Program, or APP, to $350,000 for the 2023 program year. The interest-free portion of an APP loan was previously capped at $100,000, but that level was temporarily raised last summer to $250,000 for the 2022 and 2023 program years. The APP provides farmers with cash advances of up to $1 million based on up to 50% of the anticipated market value of a farm's eligible production, whether it's still to be produced 
or is already stored. Experts say the Canadian presence of American retail giants Walmart and Costco isn't likely to blame for rising grocery prices. That's despite Canadian grocery chain executives having pushed for MPs to question those retailers as part of their study on food inflation. University of Toronto economist Ambaris Chandra called ongoing hearings performative, saying all retailers seek to maximize profits despite their stated efforts to minimize price hikes. Chandra says all grocers are going to charge what the market will let them get away with. Simon Samoji, an agribusiness researcher at the University of Guelph, says any added big volume competition in the grocery sector helps for down prices. Walmart Canada's CEO took questions from MPs on Monday night. Costco's manager for Canada will do so on April 17th. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Springtime still seems distant for southern Manitoba as snow remains and freezing temperatures persist. However, provincial pulse specialist Dennis Lang says current conditions are setting up well for seeding after temperatures rise and snow melts. In its latest flood outlook released last Wednesday, the province projected a major risk of flooding along the Red River due to heavy snow in North Dakota and Minnesota, along with a low to moderate risk for other rivers and basins. Considering a large proportion of Manitoba's pulse crops are grown in western Manitoba and the time of year some crops are seeded, Lang doesn't anticipate them to be largely affected. Lang also estimates seeded area for field peas in Manitoba to be between 160,000 and 170,000 acres, compared to 188,600 seeded last year, according to Statistics Canada. He predicted 1.2 million acres for soybeans in Manitoba this year, compared to 1.135 million in 2022 while also anticipating the seeded area for Manitoba dry beans to be similar to the 125,800 acres planted in 2022. A husband and wife duo from Rosenort, Manitoba recently received an industry award. Harley and Brooklyn Siemens, owners and operators of Siemens Farms, a 95,000 layer and 15,000 pullet operation, are Manitoba's Outstanding Young Farmers for 2023. The award recognizes the work of farmers between the ages of 18 and 39. This award adds to the family's accomplishments as Harley was chosen as part of the top four under 40 poultry farmers in Canada in 2021. With this regional win, Harley and Brooklyn will represent Manitoba in the national competition in Quebec this November. Italy's government has approved a bill banning the use of laboratory-produced food and animal feed as it aims to safeguard the country's agri-food heritage. If the proposal is passed by Parliament, Italian industry will not be allowed to produce food or feed from cell cultures or tissues derived from vertebrate animals. A breach of the rules could result in fines of up to €60,000. The nationalist administration has pledged to shield Italy's food from technological innovation seen as harmful and renamed the Agriculture Ministry the Ministry for Agriculture and Food Sovereignty. An agriculture lobby praised the move against synthetic food, saying a ban is needed to safeguard home production from the attacks of multinational companies. The bill stipulates that factories where violations occur can be shut down and producers may lose their right to obtain public funding for up to three years. 
And that's today's Ag Review. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Livestock Market Conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for April closed at 165.82 today. That's up 87. June live cattle closed at 159.65, up 75. April feeder cattle closed at 198.20. That's up 97. May feeder cattle closed at 202.52, up 172. April lean hogs closed at 76.77, down 97. May lean hogs closed at 84.42, down 157. And that's the livestock market conditions. Technology plays a major role on Canadian dairy farms. On the Ask a Farmer podcast, host Clinton Monchuk from Farm and Food Care Saskatchewan spoke to Ontario dairy producer Andrew Campbell, who is known on Twitter as Fresh Air Farmer. So I grew up on a dairy farm and we had a brand new barn built in 1983. So 1983 was our brand new barn, new technology for the time. And then looking at the technology now, it is flabbergasting just to see how much things have changed. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about some of those technological advancements and some of the innovation in the dairy industry that leads us to more of a sustainable dairy product here in this country? If I even go back a little further back past your 83 New Barn, my grandpa, when he started milking cows, milked them by hand. Today, robots milk our cows. So he comes in, makes a cup of coffee, sits at the computer and watches cows decide when they want to get milked, go in, and a robot will milk that cow. We'll clean the udder, we'll milk the cow, we'll pump that milk to be cooled and then stored in a tank. That's a major innovation, obviously, for both cow comfort as well as farmer comfort, so where you're not nearly as working nearly as physically on actually doing that job. We also have in this new barn a pile of sensors everywhere. Things like, as I look out over the barn right now in the daytime, there's a light sensor. That light sensor decides when the lights come on and off. They're not just on all day. When it's bright out like it is right now, the lights are just naturally off. We have weather stations to determine what the temperature of the barn should be and controllers that then open the barn up, close it up, depending on what the weather's like. And then obviously, even just in keeping that melt cold, our sensors to be able to make sure it's always at a refrigerated temperature, it's always stirred, it's been filtered ahead of time. There's just so much innovation that's come along from when my grandpa started to when your family built their new barn and now to 2023, where we are today. I think sometimes we glorify a little bit of the past, and my dad's knees are completely shot as a result of bending down to milk cows for all those years, and my back was sure sore as a teenager growing up and well into my 20s milking cows. How has that changed a little bit, just the labor on your farm as well to to milk cows? As you mentioned, the knees and hips, even mine still get sore for how many times I had to do it, where you took a milker to a cow, you bent down because the udder is not in a convenient place for milking. So you had to bend down, put the milker on, and then stand up. And then when she was done, you had to bend down again and take that off. And you had to do that 
For us, we had to do it 65 times twice a day. So we would be up and down hundreds of times every day. Whereas now, we're still going through the barn, but now we're walking through that barn. Maybe we're doing a little more scraping, sweeping, cleaning, just to make sure that the cows are comfortable in their stall and through all their alleyways. We're working on the robot. We're washing it. We're cleaning it. We're calibrating it, making sure it does it. It's still hours to do it, but it's not that up and down, need muscles to carry the milkers. It's jobs that my kids are 8 and 10. A lot of the jobs they can now do and are actually excited to come out well. Maybe not 100% of the time, but a lot of times are excited to be able to come out, pet their favorite cows while they go around and keep the barn tidy. The preceding excerpt comes from the Ask a Farmer podcast produced by Canadian Food Focus. You can listen to the entire podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will return in one minute's time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Saskatchewan's crop commissions have been working together to advocate on behalf of growers on broad policy issues, including grain contracts and carbon policy. Saskatchewan Pulse Growers Executive Director Carl Potts explains why. Through regular engagement with growers at AGMs, at grower meetings and calls and emails to the office, in recent years it's clear that growers expect crop commissions such as ours to be advocating for producers on top priority policy issues. They also expect us to collaborate closely with other groups and ensure we're not duplicating work or working at cross purposes. Crop commissions in Saskatchewan have worked closely together for many years but have put a little bit more formality around that collaboration over the past couple of years. Tracy Broughton, the executive director of Saskanola, tells us what Sask Crops is. As uh, organizations, we all received uh, similar resolutions around a policy issue, as you had mentioned, related to environmental policy and carbon pricing a number of years ago. And we were trying to communicate on similar messaging for a number of years and we still weren't quite getting a lot of traction. So two years ago, we had a similar resolution coming forward from um, our AGMs and that led to the Sask Barley, Sask Flax, Sask Canola, Sask Wheat, uh, Sask Pulse Growers and Sask Oats coming together to work more formally on these issues. Typically, When you're talking about a policy issue, it's whole farm related, um, related to a farmer's business rather than specific commodities. So it really made sense to work together as one. And just to make sure that we have a clear um, avenue to speak to government, uh, we decided to use the banner of SAS crops. The chair of the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers, Trent Richards, outlines why it's important for collaboration between the different crop commissions. Well, I think we're seeing an increasing push for crop commissions to join together and have a larger voice when it comes to advocating for things to the federal government. Um, You know, all the producers are, whatever variety of crop you grow, have the same issues, and this is a way of addressing them and having a louder voice. Tracy Broughton then talks about the action SAS Crops is taking when it comes to the carbon tax and fertilizer emission reduction targets. So over the last year, we spent a considerable amount of time, or even last year and a half, on the fertilizer emission reduction target that Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada was carrying out. And 
we did submit uh, written comments into that consultation as well as um, comments into the Finance Canada pre-budget consultation um, the last couple of years and just had a number of different meetings with federal MPs, provincial MPs, um, as well as government staff on both levels. And and our message really went back to, you know, what uh, Saskatchewan growers have done over the past number of decades to uh, sequester carbon in the soil, which kind of offsets some of the um, emissions that they may have on farm and just showing the efficiencies that result in, uh, it might result in productivity and profitability from a farmer standpoint, but it really has been um, advancing uh, the sector in terms of reducing emissions um, from Saskatchewan's point of view. So when that consultation came out, it was very broad um, across Canada. And we just wanted to make sure that the Saskatchewan story was recognized because we have some very progressive growers in this province and we want to make sure their voice is heard on both a provincial and national level. Uh, one of the actions that we took as a as a group was to uh, write a letter to the Prime Minister's office um, to emphasize the importance of productivity in agriculture and the importance of food production, um, especially given some of the food insecurity issues that we've been having. And that really helped to, I guess, change the the conversation with, uh, with the federal government that we were having at Saskatchewan to highlight that some of the requests that were being made in terms of emissions reduction were directly going against productivity and uh, farmers being able to take every opportunity they can to grow, um, say, and nutritious foods and it really helped to change a lot of the conversations that we were having with government. That's Tracy Broughton, the executive director of SAS Canola, talking about SAS crops and we'll have more about this conversation coming up in a few moments time. But first it's time for the commodities update and that's a presentation of Lane Realty. When it's time to sell the farm call Lane Realty, your trusted and experienced farmland real estate company. To include your property for showings, call 620-7260 or visit lanerealty.com. Commodities Update. Canola futures are closed up across the board today. May canola closed at $770 per metric ton, up $7.60. July canola closed at 752.10 up $4.10. May Minneapolis wheat closed at 878 per bushel, that's down 4 and a half cents. May Kansas City wheat closed at 870 and a half, down 2 cents. May Chicago wheat closed at 704 and 3 quarters, that's up 5 cents. May corn closed at 650 and a half, up three and a quarter cents. May soybeans closed at 1477 and a quarter, up nine and a half cents. May oats closed at 376 per bushel, down three and a quarter cents. And that's the commodities update. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will return in one minute's time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. We've been talking about the SASC Crops Organization, which is a collaboration of a number of Saskatchewan crop organizations, including the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers and SASC Canola. One of the people speaking is the chair of the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers, Trent Richards, and he outlines the results he thinks growers are looking for 
when it comes to setting carbon reduction targets? Well, I think one of the glaring uh, things that we need to learn first is, is accurate baseline measurement. Uh, so we know what direction to go as producers, like Tracy said, some are progressive, some are a little further behind. So we need to have that baseline so we can, you know, figure our profitability going forward, whether it's with new data or new technology, more, maybe more focus on the four R's, nutrient stewardship, some of these things that can help the producers become more profitable. Broughton then added to the comments from Richards. Like a lot of the comments that we were trying to get across to government was the importance of investing in research so that our growers have access to the information that they need to advance the sector. And then also tying it back to why we exist as commissions, which is really to invest in research activities. And Potts weighs in on the subject as well. One of the things that we've been hearing about uh, from growers for you know for, for a while now on on this file is is feeling like uh, you know. They, you know, they want to have recognition for the emissions reduction practices that that growers are implement, implementing every year, and so that's a message that we've, you know, we've been incorporating really into every meeting that we've had with government officials uh, on on this particular topic. You know, the the other thing we hear quite a bit too is the need to balance emissions reduction targets with the need to increase food production for a growing uh, world population. So, you know, I think uh, nobody's uh, against reducing emissions, but we have uh, in the ag ag sector, we have this dual role of not only reducing emissions, but also increasing food production in an increasingly uh, food insecure world. So so that's important. I think it's a matter of of trying to do both. And we're trying to get that message uh, across uh, to governments as as best as we can. So certainly uh, emissions reduction uh, targets, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, environment, climate change policy, that was really one of the main reasons that uh, the SAS crops groups got together. But uh, you know, since then, we've been working on other policy you know, issues as well. Grain contracts are, are one of those issues, and it's another issue that growers are facing. Last year, SAS Crops released a report detailing some of the problems as well as uh, recommendations for change related to grain contracts. Tracy Broughton then talks about the collaboration between the crop commissions when it comes to grain contracts. I guess this really, this conversation kind of got ignited in 2021 and I just want to emphasize that the imbalance and unfairness of grain contracts were already existing among farmers far before then. I think that just wasn't uh, like with a lot of farmers finding themselves in a short position and having trouble to renegotiate those contracts or or even um, exit those contracts really highlighted it for us as crop commissions that uh, more needed to be done in this area and the report that we commissioned from Mercantile Ventures was really about uh, taking a bit of a bird's eye view or like a, a third party approach to really understand where the opportunities are to rebalance some of the fairness, but also identify, you know, the wide range of issues farmers might have. So then we could we could go through and prioritize what we're hearing the most of and then and then talk to grain companies about it. We have had a number of conversations uh, with WGEA, with the Grain Commission, just to see where we can maybe have the biggest impact. Ideally, we'd like to try to find a way to to move this issue forward in the best interests of growers and make sure that we could at least get 
I guess, a, a little bit more fairness into these contracts. The way that it's been explained to me, sometimes farmers feel like, you know, there's there's actions that they can take, there's legal actions that they can take, but the balance of power is very offset. And so if a farmer is to, you know, take legal action, then they're going to be going against a grain comp, a multinational grain company. Um, so if we can figure it out as an industry, how to maybe um, incorporate some common clauses into contracts so that uh, there is a little bit more negotiating power. And it's it's not to offset any risk from the farmer. It's just to be able to um, deal with some of the, the issues they may face with delivery periods needing to be extended or buying out a contract. Trent Richards hopes the crop commissions will be happy with the information they've received from the report. Well, you know, farmers work hard to build strong relationships with grain companies. So I don't think producers are looking to reallocate uh, production production risks from farmers to grain companies. I think they're looking more clearly to define contracts. Uh, you look at different contracts, there's quite a variation in contracts. So if we can come with a, a general, clearly defined contract for all, then everybody will have a better understanding of their responsibility uh, if they are unable to fill contracts or have delivery problems or issues. And Carl Potts agrees with Trent Richards. Yeah, and I think one of the things we saw in 2021 was uh, was, was quite a bit of variability in the the administrative fees that were charged to growers when they when they needed to, to buy out of those contracts. So I think there's there's general you know acceptance that uh, you know if if market prices go up, you know and it costs uh, you know it costs some money to buy out of contracts that you, you can't uh, can't deliver on. That's one thing, but there was a, a high degree of variability on those administrative fees. So really looking, I think looking for some some better balance and more uh, you know more reasonable administrative fees, you know, for uh, for growers that just sim- simply can't deliver on on contracts for uh, you know for real significant um, you know acts of God or or severe droughts or or those sort of things. Yeah, so you know, grain contracts another topic, one that we continue to, to work on. Obviously, uh, grain export sales reporting has also recently come up at, uh, at annual general meetings as resolutions. The comments from Carl Potts, Tracy Broughton, and Trent Richards come from the Pulse of the Prairies podcast produced by the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. It's now one o'clock in Saskatchewan, two o'clock in Manitoba. Time to check the GX94 Precision Weather Forecast. For the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today. Partly to mainly sunny, winds west-southwest at 15 to 25, and a high of minus 4. For tonight, increasing cloud, winds southwest at 10 to 20, then becoming calm, a low of minus 14. For tomorrow, cloudy with a light variable wind, then becoming east-southeast at 10, a high of minus 2, a low of minus 15. For Friday, mainly sunny, winds east-southeast at 10, and a high of minus 3. For Saturday, partly sunny with increasing cloud, a high of plus 2. Sunday, cloudy with a 30% chance of evening flurries, and a high of minus 1. In the Paw, it's minus 4 degrees, Swan River minus 8, 
Dauphin minus 3, Brandon minus 10, Show Lake, Russell and Roblin minus 11. Regina is at minus 10, Saskatoon, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington minus 7, Hudson Bay minus 5, Broadview, Mooseman minus 8, Indian Head minus 9. The Yorkton-Melville region has a sunny sky, a southwest wind at 22, gusting to 32 kilometers an hour. 71% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 8 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 16 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 Saskatchewan time for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines.